There are so many people who do not know God. And it grieves me to know that. But more than that, there are so many who could have known God, would have known God, and should have known God, had I been more thirsty for them to do that. I want to tell you a story about my teacher in fifth grade. His name was Mike Thompson. Mike Thompson, he gave me a nickname. Nobody's ever given me this nickname before or since, but all year he called me that. Nobody else called me this, just him. It was Big John. I couldn't understand that because I was one of the shortest kids in the class. He'd always say, Big John, there he is, with a smile on his face and welcome me into the class. And I thought, you know, the way he welcomed me, that he really just was a nice guy and liked me. And it never occurred to me until years later, looking back on it, the reason he called me Big John is I was the only kid in class who was called John. At that time, that's what people called me. And there was another kid in class who was a little bitty guy, actually shorter than me, whose name was Lee. And his last name was Little John. Little John... Big John. That's how that happened. I never could figure that out because I couldn't understand how he could call me big when I wasn't very big. But he wasn't calling me Big John because I was big. It's because the other guy was Little John. Even though that wasn't his first name, it was his last name. So think of that for a moment and understand how we sometimes hear things we don't kind of put the picture together very well, right? We don't understand how things work in terms of reality and, and more than just what we consider. This morning's message basically says reconsider. And I'm going to ask you to do that here. Today's Father's Day. We honor the fathers. It is our Heavenly Father who gave us the greatest gift of all, which is life, and the possibility of eternal life through His Son, Jesus Christ, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And a lot of people hear the word Father, and there's a negative connotation because of their earthly father, either violent, abusive, absent, or not a good representative of a love that knows no limits that doesn't go away, that doesn't cease, that never fails. I can promise you that I know my father's love at times waxed and waned like the tides. But Jesus taught of a father who was good. A good father. A loving father. Perfect in all His ways. God is patient generous and merciful. And a lot of these things I experience from time to time in my life, but never consistently. Yet God is. And I promise you that all of us in some way have been wounded throughout life by some form of love that wasn't actually love. That wound is called the father wound. 
Because unless you have unconditional love by a Father who adored you, held you up, instructed you, you have a Father's wound there. And it's not your earthly Father wound, it's a Heavenly Father wound. There's a a hole inside each of us, they say, that's God-sized. And I remember reading one time about this guy who said that there's a there's a, a God-sized hole in himself and he kept looking to see, you know, they said it was like this big there, heart-sized. And so whenever this man got older, he was still a young boy, he said, Mama, I'd like for you to draw me a picture of God. And she says, I don't know what he looks like. Nobody does. And he says, I do. He's this big right there. I got a God-sized hole right here. He's this big. So he thought it was a God-sized hole in himself that needed filled. And his mother said, let me explain what they really meant. There's a God-sized emptiness only God can fill in us. It takes a God to do that. Nothing else can do that. In this message today, Jesus talks about a man named Nicodemus who comes to him at night. And, and I, I, I just saw this as Ginger was reading this. I've been through this passage many times. We've heard John 3.16. I don't know how many times. But it says in the second verse, and this is where God was leading me. He says when he comes to Jesus at nighttime now, Rabbi, we know. That means we who are Pharisees know that you're a teacher from God for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. And Jesus looks at him and says, you don't know that. You're trying to butter me up. You're trying to placate me and patronize me because you don't know for sure that God is with me. Otherwise, Nicodemus would have owned the truth. I know you're from God. Tell me more. But he says, we know. But the Pharisees battled Jesus every turn of the card. Every turn of the table, if you will, even in the temple, if you will, on that. But I will say this, and Jesus says to him something very interesting. It almost sounds like what he's telling Nicodemus is he's missed it. Well, he did miss it. And Jesus says, well, Nicodemus, I tell you, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born from above. You can't see God unless you have a relationship with God. Is what He's telling him. But listen to this. He doesn't just talk about being born again as an experience. He says, you cannot see God. How many people are unbelievers say, I can't believe there's a God. He doesn't exist. I have no evidence of God. I can't see God. You can't see God unless God instills in you His Holy Spirit and rebirths you from above. You can't. It's an impossibility because God is the one who reveals Himself to you and that through Jesus Christ. Nicodemus obviously doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about when he says, well, then how can a man be born again when he is old? Obviously, in this passage, Nicodemus is thinking Jesus means to be rebirthed. Mm -hmm. And so the born again or reborn 
is an accurate way to understand what Jesus has said to him, but Nicodemus misses the statement. Nicodemus goes after the born again rather than see God. Isn't that what we're really after? I want this eternal life, but I don't want to see God. Give me the eternal life, the assurance of salvation, but seeing God in everywhere and everything I do, that's a little much. No, it's not. That's the purpose of being born again is to begin to see God's kingdom everywhere you turn as an opportunity for God to be made known. If you miss this, you've missed everything because this is the message of salvation. Everything else is not important if salvation isn't present in your life. A lot of people don't understand salvation. They understand that it's like a prayer or eternal life, and it's not. That's not what salvation is. Salvation and eternal life are not the same thing. Salvation is not a prayer. (laughs) Salvation is a work of God. It's a past work. By that I mean it's been settled already. The cross is enough for salvation. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is enough. You don't need to add to it for salvation. It is a complete, finished work of God through Jesus Christ, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can you agree with me there? You can't add to it and make it better. You can't take away from that and make it work. It's also a present work because God is working out His salvation through you when you are born again. The salvation is a work where God is working His Spirit through you to become Christ-like. That's God's job, is to make you like His Son. That's not your job, that's God's job. You can't make you like Jesus. You can't act yourself into holiness. God says you can be holy, but you can't act holy unless you are holy. Otherwise, it's just someone who's not holy trying to pretend. So it's a present work, but it's also a future work because one day we're going to give up this shell we live in. For some of us, not far away. And when we do, that shell is gone. Then there is another step of salvation where we enter into the glorified body, the spiritual body, and then we enter into full salvation. Full restoration of the relationship and we're one with God in Jesus Christ forever. That's future. But the work of salvation and the joy and the peace is now in the relationship with Jesus Christ. It doesn't come without it. Put it simply, it's not a one-time thing. A couple years ago I did a sermon called One and Done. There is no one and done. Pray and you're done. Pray and you start. Amen. Let God start doing the work of salvation through you. He even says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Salvation is a permanent life-changing relationship with a person and that person is Jesus Christ. It's not an event. It's a person. Jesus Christ is the resurrection. Jesus Christ is the life. Do you believe this? 
Jesus did not come to condemn us. In John 3, verse 17, it says that God sent His Son not into the world to condemn it, but that through Him it might be saved. He came to show us the way of freedom. Here's our verse. For freedom, Christ has set us free. There is a bondage until Christ sets you free. You can't walk away from it. You can't unchain yourself from it. Only the power of God can because you're in bondage to the power of sin. For in sin, we have died spiritually and henceforth eternally without the bondage broken. So stand firm. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We are in slavery or enslaved to the power and sin in our lives until Calvary becomes our life story. Here's how it looks. Here's my life now. Calvary, it's different. That life is no longer me. That's a stranger. Without Christ, I am nothing. With Christ, I can do all things through Him. I can do nothing without Him. Jesus even says, I can do nothing without the Father. So can we do nothing without the Father or Jesus Christ. It is pointless as Solomon says to us in Ecclesiastes, vanity. But Jesus didn't come to tell you how miserable you are because you sin. I've heard a lot of Christians browbeat other Christians, thump the Bible over the head and tell them how they're doing wrong. I already know. So do they. Don't, don't we? Don't we know when we're messing up? Sure we do. We don't need someone to tell us how bad we are. We need someone to tell us a way out. How to change. How to have a life worth living. And Jesus came to show us the way out. The way to freedom. And the truth, who is Jesus Christ, will set you free. There is no other way. So the question we have to begin to ask ourselves is, who's the Lord of my life? Who runs my life? Do I run all the situations in my life and decisions through a committee in my head? Do I just look at the options and choose? Or do I say, Lord God, You're the Lord of this life of mine. I prefer not to run it because You're Lord. So I choose to be in submission to Your will. Make this decision and let me be obedient to it. A lot of people hear that and they go, but how do you know God's will? Well, first of all, you have to seek it. If you're not seeking it, you'll never know it. But there are ways to know God's will for your life if you so desire to know them and are diligent. For God says, you will seek me and you will find me if you search me with all your heart. That's when you'll find God. And if you're seeking God and you're saying, I can't find God, God is saying, wait on me. Be still and know that I am God. Who do you think is the Lord of your life? Who makes your decisions? How you spend your time. What you do with your day. Your mornings, your evenings, your, your finances, your resources, your, your spare time. Who determines that? 
Who's the Lord of your life? But let me tell you something. And don't get this wrong. Because whoever's Lord of your life better be the Lord of your death. Because when you're dead, you've got no choice about who's Lord of your life if it's you. Because there's nothing you can do to fix it, to change it, or make a decision when you breathe your last. So if you're Lord of your life and your life or someone else is running it that isn't God, guess what? You're in trouble when you die because you're not in the hands of a merciful God. So whoever's Lord of your life, you better want that to be the Lord at your death when you can't be. Does that make sense? Some people say, who's the Lord of your life? I say, who's the Lord of your death? It's a question I want to ask you, and I'm asking it. Why? Because being born again is a work of grace by faith. Martin Luther said it this way when he had challenged the Catholic Church on the indulgences. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and nothing else. Amen. Here I stand on the Word of God. I can do no other. At that point, he was excommunicated from the Catholic Church and began Protestant Lutheran Church. Because the Catholics would not stop trying to sell salvation. By grace only, through faith alone. Nothing else you can add to it. It is God's grace, the gift of faith that He gives you, that alone brings you to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. God is the author and finisher, according to Hebrews chapter uh, 12, of our salvation and faith. Pioneer and perfecter of it. He is the beginning and the end. And if He's the beginning and the end, the author and finisher, then He needs to be in the middle. Writing the story. Not you. And not somebody else. Because they are not going to write the story God planned for you. Or that you were designed for. And what we don't understand is when we choose other, we have consequences for that. Sin has not only consequences, but it has power over you. If you read Romans 6, you'll see it says sin is a, you're under sin's dominion. The power of sin is what Christ takes away. It no longer has the power and the authority to destroy you. It only has the power to infect you. Let me tell you how this works. Before I came to Jesus Christ, I was scared. I think I've told you this before, but I was pretty much afraid of everything. Kind of like Charlie Brown. (laughs) I was afraid of everything. The dark, claustrophobic uh, people, loud noises, you name it, I was afraid. I was afraid of dying. I was afraid of living. I was afraid of being me. I was afraid of not being me. I, I, you name it, I walked around in fear all day long, never sure how to live or to be. The moment Jesus Christ came in, it was gone. That no longer had power over me and hasn't had since. Never will. Because Christ did a work and said, I am 
your peace. Took it all away. I cannot tell you how powerful that is even now, 30 some years later. I still remember the moment when I was no longer afraid. How there was such a drastic change. I went, I don't know how I live not afraid. But I like it. And the scripture tells us that I use for call to worship that we must choose. Moses is telling us through and God through him that we must choose life or death. It's a very simple choice. They say, yes, God did this. Jesus Christ is who He is revealed to be through Scripture and through testimony and through the world around us and through the miracles that Jesus Christ is the author behind those or you believe He is not. If you say you are not sure, you've made a choice to believe He is not. Why? Because not choosing is saying, I don't side with Christ. How does this work? How does salvation actually come about? How does it make sense? How is grace factored into this? And I want to tell you how. And this story was shared with me a while ago. And my teacher friend, Mike Thompson, I don't think he knew this story, but it's about a man named Big John. It wasn't me. It was a different Big John. Big John was a student in a classroom. It was a one-room classroom back in the day. Big John was about six foot four. Senior. One-room classroom. There was a little boy, eight years old. His name was John also. They called him Little John with good cause. He was a little bitty shrimp of a kid. Always wore raggedy clothes. Scrawny would come into class with little lunch pail and uh, go home at the end of the day. No kids hung out with him. One day, John noticed that uh, his lunch was always missing something. Usually it was his piece of fruit. Sometimes it was his sandwich. And soon other kids began to report that their stuff was stolen. And nobody could figure out who. So the teacher set up someone to hide in the room to watch what happened as they went on to recess because that's when it was happening. And little John would say he'd have to use the restroom. He'd go back in the building and use the restroom. And as he was coming out, he'd rummage through the lunch boxes and put food in his empty lunch box so he could have lunch. They caught him. And there was a rule in that school that if anybody caught stealing was found, they would receive from the teacher a solid wood paddle 20 times for every item stolen. The kids thought that would be a good deterrent. They all agreed to it. Well, they found out who was doing it. And the punishment was 20 panels from the teacher for every item stolen. And they found out it was little John. 
And after lunch that day, they said, we know who's been doing it. It's little John. And they said, little John, we want to know why you've been doing it. And he said, quite simply, that's the only food I get because my parents can't afford to feed us. And if I don't take something from the lunch boxes, I'll never eat. And so I try to take some and a little extra for my sister who has nothing also. And I just wanted to feed myself and my sister. My parents don't have any way to feed us. And when they do feed us, it's next to nothing. And the teacher said, I'm sorry, little John. Rules are rules. How many items did you take today? And he said, I took five. Two apples, an orange, a sandwich, and a cookie. And the class is all moved by little John's story. But the teacher said, rules are rules, little John, come up here. You know the consequence, little John says, I know. And he comes, trembling before the teacher. The teacher bends over, says, bend over. Little John bends over. And in that moment, Big John stands up. He says, teacher, do the rules require that the person who did it must receive that punishment? And the teacher said, no, it only requires that this happen. 20 lashes per item with this paddle. And Big John says, can I take the punishment for him? And the teacher says, only if little John says it's okay. And the teacher looked at little John and said, would that be okay? And he said, I don't deserve that. I'm not worthy of that. The teacher said, we're not asking you if you're worthy of it. Not asking you if it's okay. Asking if you will allow him to take your place. And little John said, Why would he do that? And the teacher said, Why do you ask Big John? And Big John said, Because I know it's like to be hungry. And I know it's like to be empty and to have family who can't feed you. Because I was like that a long time ago. And I saw your hurt. And I knew you were taking from my lunch. That's why I always pack an extra orange and an extra apple. I knew it. And I knew it because I love you. Will you let me love you? All the way. And Big John received what little John earned. Do you understand what Jesus did for us? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it's not something we deserve or earn or find or get blessed. It's because we couldn't, you did. There was no way for us to get to you. There was no way for us to pay a debt we could not 
pay. The debt we owed, but no way for us to make it right. And so, Heavenly Father, you sent your only begotten Son to be crucified on a cross to carry the weight of all the sin of the world on His back and to be bled out that His healing blood of salvation would redeem us. That He would be resurrected to restore us to life with Him. That He was now identified with our pain and our suffering because He bore it for us. And yet, Heavenly Father, we, we don't always understand that or what it means. But it means that all He wants is a relationship. To restore the friendship that you had with us at the very beginning with Adam. That we could walk with you and fellowship with you and talk with you if we would just say, yes, I accept what you've done for me. I will accept that and not carry it over my own head anymore. Heavenly Father, help us to receive that today. And so see your kingdom. Amen. I've asked our musicians to play for us to sing just as I am.